Welcome to Feed Matters, Feed Navigator's podcast series. In this episode, we chat to Jan Dijkstra, an Associate Professor at the Animal Nutrition Group in Wageningen University in Research in the Netherlands. We check in with him about how the toolkit for enteric methane reduction is expanding. And we ask what advances are we seeing and which technologies are going to have the greatest impact in lowering methane production in beef and dairy cattle. Jan, would you say we now know what really works in terms of dietary approaches? Uh, we, we've got solid science in a way that we've got uh, good measurement techniques to allow us to accurately determine the methane emissions. Uh, worldwide, obviously, there's a lot of research going on uh, in, uh, in real cattle. Um, so a lot is happening, but we need, obviously, as always, as a researcher, I say, <laughs> we need to know more. Uh, in particular, we need to know more about the long-term effects of some of the suggested strategies. And secondly, we are, we know that it's not one strategy that will be the one and final silver bullet. We probably are going to have to combine different strategies in order to reach our targets. And there's little research on uh, the impact of combining strategies and whether or not the effect is additive or you have uh, trade-offs between different strategies. So I'd, I'd say the long term, as well as combining strategies, are areas that we really need more research on. Well, you were one of 24 experts uh, yeah. from top-level institutes around the world who, who reviewed hundreds of peer-reviewed studies yeah. for strategies designed to decrease product-based and absolute enteric methane emissions by ruminants. What were the findings of that study, which was really comprehensive? Yeah, it was a major study. Lots of people uh, globally involved. Uh, real, I think, real thorough study. Well, we, we indeed had like 100 or so strategies identified from uh, well over 400 uh, papers, scientific papers. A couple of very striking results. The first one is that of those 100 strategies, around two thirds or so did not lead to significant uh, decrease in methane. So a lot of strategies that we see in literature or in popular press are being uh, touted as, as being a very effective methane mitigation strategy actually simply do not work or at least do not have a significant impact, which is a major finding. What we also found was there are a couple of um, very effective strategies and we identified in total eight, three strategies were what we call uh, strategies that help to um, decrease methane per unit of product and they do not necessarily decrease methane per animal, the production per animal, but they increase the production of animals and as a result uh, decrease methane per unit of product. And those strategies include obvious ones like increasing feed intake level will decrease methane per unit of product. If you feed a lot of roughage like grass, um, having that grass at a lower maturity will help to decrease methane emissions per unit of product or, for example, increasing concentrate. So we had uh, product-based strategies and then we had also what we call absolute methane emission uh, reduction strategies where methane was reduced per, uh, you know, in, in emission per animal uh, while not decreasing the performance 
of the animals. So we were not looking for an increase in performance. We wanted to have the performance in milk or meat production at least the same, uh, but at the same time decrease the methane emissions. And those uh, strategies include, for example, nitrate as an uh, electron acceptor, uh, 3NOP or BOVAR as a very effective methane mitigation strategy, um, fats and oils, as well as uh, tenderfers forages. So forages uh, often legumes that will uh, contain tannins and in that way help to reduce methane emissions in an absolute way, again, always without decreasing the performance of the animal. And what insights can you share with us, Jan, about the long-term efficacy of 3NOP or BOVAR as it's branded by DSM? And we know from various studies that take uh, like four months or so uh, that um, the impact of 3NOP stays the same. We've done one study ourselves um, from animals that we uh, had 3NOP immediately after calving dairy cattle and we followed the animals for four months in our respiration chambers and there was no uh, change in efficacy of uh, 3NOP. And one thing that may have uh, an impact there in those long-term studies, if you do a long-term study, it's really hard to keep the diet really completely constant. Like in practice in the Netherlands, also in our experiments, for example, we don't always have enough uh, say grass silage of the same quality that you can feed uh, throughout a very lengthy period. Sometimes you have to change the grass silage. And um, we know that uh, the quality of uh, the grass silage, for example, or other dietary components has an impact on the efficacy. So for example, the more fiber there is in the diet, the lower the efficacy of 3NP. And then if you change the diet or have to change the diet during a long-term trial, uh, you may see a difference in efficacy that may be related to the change in diet. Well, looking at other dietary interventions, obviously there's been a, a lot of focus on seaweed-based yeah. additives. And there's been a lot of work done on that in the last three years, a lot of startups focused on, on using seaweed in this respect. Again, there haven't been a lot of long-term studies done on the use of this kind of dietary intervention. There was a report by Meat and Livestock Australia and it was one of the longest commercial trials ever conducted on a supplement derived from the red seaweed species, yeah. Asparagopsis, and it showed much lower reductions in methane production than previous work. That was added to the diets of 40 Wagyu cattle in an Australian feedlot for 300 days. And the methane they produced was cut by 28%, as opposed to the reductions of between 80 and 90% seen yeah. for such products in previous trials of much shorter duration. Like what is your take on that? Again, I think it's it's really important to study the long-term impact. Um, I also read that uh, report from Australia. Um, very interesting to see what they did. Uh, and they fed it for a long period of time, probably the most long period of time ever with this, uh, with this seaweed. Again, we need to know how microbes may adapt to this uh, active compound in the red seaweed, which is the bromoform. Also, obviously, we have to be very careful on to uh, possible negative impact of the active compounds on, on the product. There are some studies that suggest there's no bromoform in meat or milk. Um, our own study from two years ago showed that initially there will be some bromoform in the milk as a, as a residue. Uh, probably initially the animal will not metabolize the bromoform completely and it takes a bit of time 
to uh, metabolize it completely and then you don't see bromoform in in our case in the milk of dairy cattle anymore there are also studies interesting studies from sweden where they looked at um, feeding asparagopsis and they also studied the impact on milk quality in the sense of the levels of bromine and iodine in milk and those levels were increased um, I don't know more than 40 fold or something out of the top of my head uh, and they they calculated how much milk uh, people would be able to drink um, staying within the limits of daily bromine or iodine intake and there were some surprising results in the sense that like a, a child up to a certain age would then be allowed to drink only half a cup or so of milk before reaching that level so that shows that when we use this uh, red seaweed or if we isolate the compound it also companies startups that isolate the active compound and try to feed that to animals we need to take care that um, the product quality is good and that we don't run into issues with product quality and consumer acceptance. We've talked a little bit there about some of those dietary interventions, um, but when it comes to grazing cattle, it's a little yeah. bit more challenging, isn't it? So in relation to pasture-based cattle production, what are the uh, most effective interventions? Is, is breeding uh, a potential solution here, a breeding for methane efficiency? Yes, breeding would not just be obviously for grazing cattle, <laughs> a possible route to mitigate methane emissions it would be for any uh, cattle basically or sheep or other ruminants um, but indeed uh, the, the options by dietary interventions to uh, reduce methane emissions on grazing animals are, are, are lower uh, you're looking um, for with breeding uh, it's promising because we know that the methane emission is is a horrible trait depending on which study you have it's either low to moderately heritable so we should be able to breed for lower methane emission animals and especially with uh, genomic breeding uh, techniques and technologies once you've established a, a reference population of animals with known methane uh, we may be able to make much faster progress in achieving animals that have a lower methane emission I saw some reports, for example, for sheep indicating a 10% reduction in methane over a period of 10 years. Uh, for the Dutch situation, my colleagues calculated something like 25-30% um, reduction after a 25-year period of, of selection um, and breeding for low methane. Obviously, what you need to know then is, does that breeding for low methane animals have any other impact on uh, animals in terms of its production, any relationships with health or feed intake of the animals, etc. That's an area that, to me, it still needs to be lots of uh, lots of research before you can really apply it with confidence. So for grazing uh, situations, we're looking for changes on the pasture itself, like having uh, certain tenderfers forages, for example, in your pasture containing tenants to try and reduce methane emissions. Um, there are also situations, for example, dairy cattle, where the animals would still go uh, inside the stable to be milked, say, twice a day. And in that uh, perspective, you could feed twice a day a little concentrate in the milking parlor uh, with a more slow-release active compound. So I know there are many startups that also look at 
slow release uh, compounds that either work for a couple of hours uh, in between milkings or work for a couple of weeks that you can have your beef cattle graze in pasture for several weeks and the compound slowly releases uh, in the rumen and does its, its job. But yes, with grazing animals, the situation is, uh, is, is more difficult than in a confined situation. But there are a lot of barriers to use of, of certain supplements um, in some markets, aren't there? Uh, one being their cost, uh, another being yeah. a lack of regulation. Yeah, you need the regulation, like uh, take the example of Bofair, it took years obviously to have it uh, accepted. It's now accepted in Europe, in Australia, some South American countries, but it, it's a long route to get it accepted. And you will have that for most of those uh, supplements or additives that you need to go, and rightly so, I think, through a lengthy regulatory process that requires also uh, good detailed studies to underline the efficacy and the safety of the product. And that's not always rapidly available and certainly not in low or middle income countries that don't have the, let's say, the financial power to use those additives. And that's also a major finding of the study that we were, we were addressing at the start of this, uh, this interview. In Western areas, like in Europe, it is relatively easy to apply uh, some of those um, strategies and achieve the targets that we need in methane reduction to stay below the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, warming limit that the IPCC suggests. But for other countries like Africa, we, we can't reach that. And the reason is that in those countries, there will be an expected increase in the demand for animal-based uh, products and food. And this increased consumption will be greater than anything you can do uh, with uh, technologies, let alone that technologies are probably not rapidly available in those countries. So the barriers basically are indeed what's the availability of technologies, especially in the, in the let's say, the low or middle income countries, where we expect a lot of increase in methane emissions simply because people would like to consume more animal products. And in Western areas, Europe, United States, other areas, um, there is potentially enough financial power to utilize uh, those, um, those strategies. Um, and those areas may be able to achieve the targets that IPC has set. But the large worldwide, if you look at the global scale, the large target really are countries like in Africa or Southeast Asia with this expanding uh, demand for animal products, increasing methane emissions and possible low uh, resources in order to imply uh, technologies to reduce methane. That's quite a depressing scenario that you've just it, described. There's a lot of research and a lot of investments in the Western type areas, in the developed countries, the high income countries. And if you look at it, really, we could achieve on a global scale more reductions in methane emissions if we would focus more on ways to reduce methane emissions in those low middle income countries, which which often is very going down very to a basic uh, good nutrition of animals. Like um, often you see that the protein content of the diet is low. Increasing the protein content of the diet by having technologies such as yeast-based uh, cassava fermentation or something that is low cost, but it may improve 
the protein situation of those animals a lot. They produce a lot more uh, products per unit of feed, and that means also um, less methane per unit of product. I think we need much more attention and much more research on trying to increase, let's say, the um, productivity and the nutritional status of animals in those low and middle income countries uh, with a view also to reduce methane emissions.